Hello, and welcome to another episode of Required Reading. This is Nick Hoffman, your host. Uh, this episode, we're talking about Michael Shara's, I guess, classic novel, The Killer Angels, which the movie Gettysburg is based on. Uh, I don't know exactly how you'd classify it. It's a fictionalized account based on nonfiction accounts of the Battle of Gettysburg from the point of view of several uh, key figures, which all of which we get into. But it's a, an interesting piece. So let's talk about it. Uh, thanks for listening, subscribing. If you haven't done so yet, please review us wherever you get us. Uh, it allows us to kind of see how we're doing. Thank you very much. Yeah, okay, so welcome. Uh, this week on Required Reading, this episode on Required Reading, we're doing uh, Michael Shara. Is that how you say it? I believe that is, yes. There's 18 A's in his last name. Michael Shara. Uh, the Killer Angels, uh, which came out in 1975, I believe? 74. 74, and then he won the prize in 1975. Pulitzer in 75, right. Yeah. Pulitzer. Um, and it's the basis for the movie Gettysburg. Correct. Which uh, was 93? I believe so. Um, and it's kind of weighted down in a, a mildly corrective version of the Lost Cause mentality. And it is a war story based on the Civil War. Um, and the, you know, the battle of Gettysburg in particular, right? Yeah. The, the horrifying battle of Gettysburg right. uh, from a mostly Southern perspective. So, um, I guess this one is, we should start with you because you assigned this book this year. Correct. Uh, and in what context did you assign it? What familiarity did you have? So, um, I mean, my first encounter with it was probably when I was in college. I didn't read it for class, but this was maybe, when did the Ken Burns film come out? 89? Maybe ninety, not eighty nine, ninety. Because it was supposed to be like it was an anniversary year, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I watched that and was blown away, like everybody was swept up in, in that. And then um, I got the book, or I, I, and it goes even deeper than that. So I, you know, I used to be a runner, long distance runner, and in Atlanta area where you do your long distance run, you go to Kennesaw Mountain because there's sure. sixteen miles of trails and some of the best trails to run on in anywhere I've ever been. And as I'm running on the trails, you realize, oh, this little mound here, that's a, that's a former trench. And you just sort of get into it and sort of as you're in the landscape. Um, so I've always sort of been curious about the Civil War. And then I think I got the book for Christmas at, um, for my parents, actually. Sure. Um, read it, loved it, you know, and thought it was great. And then at one point we put it on the summer reading list and we had a long list of books and I don't know if you were here for that, Nick, where each faculty member would choose a book and sort of sponsor it, and kids would have like 50 books to choose from, and you'd have a conversation about it one day and done. That was the optional summer reading book. Sure. That went well for a couple of years, and then kids figured out that, oh, there's no test, and so they stopped reading the book, and that made it really awkward for, for some people that were putting themselves out there, like a math teacher for whatever is, is you know, have a book discussion, and then kids show up and don't read the book. Um, and so that phased out a long way to say that it's sort of been on and off our summer reading list, uh, for a while. We never really taught it in class. And, yeah. and that's what we did again this year is we made it an optional book in the, um, 10th grade for their book circles. So we, we gave them a list of 10 books to pick and then, you know, put them in groups of, you know, four to six to, to read it together. Sure. Sure. And by all accounts it went well. I mean, did, what did you hear? No, I mean, I, I, I'm not that I'm surprised. It's just, you know, it's interesting to see because it, it has some, not dated prose, but it feels like a book from the 70s. Um, and some of the pacing is interesting. And I liked it. That's not to say I don't like it. It's just this era of books doesn't get taught very often. I mean, you have Cuckoo's Nest, but we usually kind of skip the mid-70s as far as literature goes. Yeah, that's true. Um, because we're not quite to blockbuster literature yet, though this is a blockbuster novel. Right. Um, and we're kind of after the age of the 19... Like, the World War II veterans coming out and having, like, PTSD books, like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut and stuff. So right. it, it's kind of that in-between world. I, I had honestly never read this before. Oh, um, really? No, and it, I, I picked it up, A, because you recommended it, but I had an association with it being a book that glamorizes the Civil War, and my whole academic career has been trying to strip that away... Um, but I will say I was impressed. Obviously, we'll get to the back end of it and how we, you know, whether we think it should be taught or that kind of thing. But um, I understand now why this is such a a classic. You know, um, coming out in '74, that means it comes out 
almost at the what 110th anniversary of Gettysburg itself. Right. Right. And so, uh, you know, and Shara's son, is it Jeff Shara? Yeah. Has come out with several more books and, you know, the Civil War runs in some families, I guess. Yeah. And I have not read any of his books. So I believe Gods and Generals was one of his, the, the second Ted Turner Civil War epic. Yeah, which I never saw. Did you see that? <laughs> Absolutely not. Although I was working in a cineplex when it came out. Oh, nice. Um, and it did everything wrong, which I guess now works. But, like, it's a historical period piece that's almost four hours long. <laughs> and so that means, like, on an average Saturday, it had, like, three showings. And so it just it never made its money back, right? right. Um Marvel broke everything, and so now you can have a three and a half hour movie and make money. But back then you couldn't. That's why everything was ninety three minutes yeah. long in the nineties and two thousands. Right. Um, but yeah, so let, let's kind of get into this a little bit, Mike. Uh, where do you want to start? Um, I think what's fun and interesting for the kids to see, um, maybe because they've never read a book quite like this before, is um, well, there's always the classic sort of back and forth between what's real and what's not real when you're dealing with historical fiction. And so hopefully we'll talk to that or you can speak to that as a historian. Sure. Um, but I think I read that he used largely um, Longstreet's journals or did Longstreet have a memoir or? Sure, he does. Um, and Longstreet, I mean, we can talk about him just for a second here, but Longstreet, um, when, when the war ends, there's this kind of attempt to recover the South. And this is called the Lost Cause. Uh, and people like the Daughters of the Confederacy, several former pre um, Confederate uh, politicians uh, do things like fund university seats, uh, write books, uh, Jeff Davis, or uh, Je <laughs> Jefferson Davis, I can't give him friend names, like, yeah, my buddy Jeff, you know. Uh, Jeff Davis, you know, uh, writes his own memoirs, all of which are saying, like, this is a lost cause. There were noble people fighting, and, you know, this thing falls apart. It's where the state's rights mentality comes from, which right. is based on Jefferson and the Virginia resolutions. On the, all of those, especially after his death, Longstreet is made the villain of the story. Um, and that's partially because of Gettysburg, uh, partially because people worshipped Robert E. Lee. And, I mean, even in this book, we'll get to it, but... Uh, Longstreet is right, Lee ignores him, and that causes the battle to go wrong. And if you're someone who venerates Robert E. Lee, L James Longstreet looks like a villain. All right. Uh, and then he does the unthinkable thing, which is he joins the Republican Party uh, in the 1880s, which therefore makes him siding with the enemy. Um, and so at that point, they essentially burn Longstreet's name, even though by, I mean, again, Michael Shara's account, he's possibly the best general in the war. Um, and if people weren't literally worshipping Robert E. Lee, uh, Longstreet could have been that general. Right. Um, and so, I mean, this is an appropriate book to talk about. I'm sure this came up in your class, because this is an era where we're tearing down those old Confederate monuments and, you know, trying to reestablish what the war should mean in our background. Um, but again, you know, it's something academically I worked on, as you alluded to. But it's very interesting to read that book in this context, because... By the 70s, you know, we have had the second civil rights movement build up, the Civil Rights Act passed, and at this point, pretty much, like, half of them have been assassinated, and it's starting to slide back into the more conservative 80s, and the story that has been told since then is much more complicated, and historians since the 70s and 80s have been trying to show the complexity of the story, uh, which is going great right now, as you can... Right. Uh, the, the summer, um, I guess we can... You know, we live in the metro area of Atlanta, and Decatur just took down a, a monument like three weeks ago, a Confederate monument three weeks ago, that had a made-up quote from Winston Churchill on it. Uh, which and This was in the, the courthouse square, like, you know, very prominent yeah, memorial. Yeah, and it there. has since been replaced with a civil rights leader, or at least maybe, the it's going to be replaced. The right. old one has been taken down. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting time to read a book that is essentially told from... And the, the what I was getting to or wanted to get to was what's interesting for the kids is it's told from sh shifting point of views. Every chapter is a different point of view. So we do a chapter from Longstreet's point of view, a chapter from Lee's point of view. Mm -hmm. Buford is in there. Chamberlain's in there. Um, and so that's just kind of fun structure for the kids to see that, that yeah. each chapter is... And you can... I've never really done this, and it would be fun to do, is to look at uh, Dashara shift the style of writing for each chapter. I mean, obviously, each character thinks a little differently, but 
does the actual syntax and diction change from um, character to character? Because as you said, sometimes it feels a little stilted, whether that's sort of the 70s idea or he's trying to recreate this um, southern gentil gentility of, of these characters and, and playing up that myth. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, there, there are some sort of very purpley prose sections, but also some very sort of very direct, as you would expect, army people to be talking. Um, so, yeah, that's that, that's unique about it, that each chapter is a different um, perspective and he, he shifts between um, different generals, mostly, although Chamberlain's a colonel. Now, I have a question for you as an English teacher, which I know is terrifying. Yes. Uh -oh. um, so another book that students read, and we, we might do an episode on this later, uh, Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Red Courage. Badge of Courage. Right. And one of the interesting like literary things about Red Badge of Courage is how unspecific it is. Like We get the main character's name said by other people, but that's sparsely throughout. I think I finally caught that it was his name in like the second half, right. maybe the third. You know, and they're, they're referring to battles, but we don't really have a battle. This is very specific. Um, and so I guess my question is, you know, does that make it easier to teach, harder to teach, uh, more engaging, do you think, for students or less? I, I think that's a great question. I think it depends on the student themselves. So those sort of more history-minded or more literal might like this. And, and the book has maps, you know, every six pages or so and showing the movement of troops, and um, which I assume, I mean, I've, I've read a lot and know a fair, I'm by far from being an expert, but know a little bit about the Battle of Gettysburg and how things went and um, he seems to get it all right, and it's all accurate that way. So I think students that enjoy that are um, rewarded with that in this book. Um, to compare it with Red Badge of Courage, I mean, it's such a different book. Because you're right, that's much more in the sort of naturalist in, in literary terms. Um, man is small and insignificant in this larger, you know, yeah. indifferent universe. Um, so, yeah. Well, and I mean, it, to get very literary, which God help us, but um, it makes sense because Red Badge of Courage is written in the pragmatic age of the, like, the post-Civil War era. And this is written in the post-60s, which is a romantic era if there ever has been one. In fact, if anything, it's almost pushing against the growing conservatism in culture and literature. Because by the late 70s, early 80s, that's when we're starting to get things like your Dirty Harry's, your reaction to... Um, you know, Vietnam in a, in a very aggressive way, right? So it's kind of interesting to see what this feels like um, because that's something we, we don't really talk about. I mean, we will obviously in this, in our American Experiment class, talk about how culture changes. But do you assign this book as a historian or as an English teacher to illustrate the Civil War? Or do you show it to illustrate the 70s and talk about, you know, because this against Vietnam feels very appropriate because in Vietnam it's to, it's a war we effectively lose at right. the end and 74 is a year we pull out of Vietnam for the final time right and so people reading this probably felt like you know is Gettysburg our Saigon right he's commenting on these you know stupid attacks to take a hill that they know are doomed right um, um, you know reflecting Pickett's charge in the novel which yeah makes a great point a parallel to Vietnam when you're reading this in the 70s right and like that, that scene, very specifically, I remember, of Pickett coming back to the command center, like, bloodied and beaten, and I'm the only one left of my command. Uh, that really does feel like someone who, you know, not my lie, but, you know, like, something like that, where there's a massacre, and there's just no one left, and what do you say? How do you feel? And I think that hits the zeitgeist very well in the, the late 70s. Yeah, know? that's a great point. Um, I, to be honest, I think that's probably a layer too sophisticated for 10th graders at this point. Um, I mean, I think we can make that point, but I don't know that they'll get that, that they'll, they'll appreciate that. But that's what teaching is. Like you expose them to something and at some point maybe it sticks or resonates. Sure. Um, so I think it's just, uh, it's very readable. And then I, that's what I go back to for, you know, how I'm evaluating books. Will the kids read it? You want them to be engaged enough to finish the book because there's so much competing for their attention. Um, so I think if they're hooked into that, that makes it a good choice. And then then you can determine what you want to do with that, whether you're talking about the Civil War, whether you're talking about the um, the structure of the pair of the chapters, whether you want to talk, 
you know, in its historical context when it was published in the 70s. I think those are all valid. Mm. You would know your students best. Yeah, um, so let, let's kind of get into this. Now, again, this is a historical narrative. I, I believe it starts in like the 28th of June, although most of it, of course, maybe three-fifths of the book is the battle itself. And so we're talking about the Confederates getting from, you know, northern Virginia through Maryland into Pennsylvania um, from like the 28th and 29th and 30th, and then the battle starts on the 1st of July. Right. Um, three main characters are Chamberlain, Robert E. Lee, and... Um, Longstreet. And James Longstreet. Um, so I guess as a non-historian but who knows history, uh, what did you think of the characterization of Robert E. Lee? It's interesting, and I, I highlighted some passages, and, and maybe we can read some quotes. Please. Um, but it, it, you're right in that he's sort of bucking up, which, again, as a historian, you can comment on the um, great man theory of Robert E. Lee as this sort of god among all these people, infallible, um, towards the end where you know Longstreet is openly challenging him but ultimately submits like I, I don't think this plan is going to work general and and disagreeing with it with the frontal assault on the last day yeah um and mentioning like longstreet knows it's wrong and and so i wonder historically was this a turning point in sort of rehabilitating longstreet's um reputation itself um at the expense of Lee and Stewart doesn't, I mean, um, Stewart gets a bad rap in this as well because they're left out. They're left not knowing. Robert right. Lee doesn't know any intel on the, on the troops that are sort of by chance meeting in Gettysburg. And, and I think Stewart probably deserves more blame, but it's very subtle here. And how does that jive so, historically? I mean, we can get into a little bit of waves of history, but uh, one of the most important things in American history is the GI Bill of Rights. And after World War II, we have a generation of veterans who come home and they go to college and they go to grad school, right, for the first time uh, in a lot of their families. Uh, again, eventually we'll get to a book where we get to talk about how the race problem there develops. But in this side, we'll talk about it as a positive. We have a bunch of veterans who decide to investigate history for the first time in a different way, and that is as veterans, right? But at a distance. So for the next 15 to 20 years, when we get to the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, all of a sudden we have a new wave of academics who are experts in military and are looking at the Civil War not from these passionate lost cause mentalities, but from a military perspective. And to your question... They are doing a lot of the hardcore, boring academic research that is starting to rehabilitate um, Longstreet and say that Lee was wrong. So after this era, I mean, again, at the centenary of the surrender, right, the centenary of Gettysburg, we have these academic books and papers, you know, people, uh, most of you who are listening probably don't know these historians, but people like C. Van Woodward and things like that are coming out and re-changing or changing how we think about American history. Never, ever, if you want to sound smart around historians, never use the word revisionism because history is constantly being revised by looking at it from different perspectives. And so, strategically, Lee screws up here. And that's what we're getting. I mean, a decade later, someone like Shara takes all the academic literature and breaks it down, right? Like, uh, and even Shelby Foote tosses some shade in his volume three of the Civil War, which is... There are problems with that, those books, but my God, it's like 2,800 pages and three volumes written over 30 years. The man is a legend. Right. Right. But yeah, so that's what Longstreet is getting at. Like, uh, Lee makes some tactical blunders. He may have been the best general of the old style of fighting, but James Longstreet is a newer style, which they kind of reference. Right. His, his um, preference or seeing the, the value of fighting defensively and using trenches yeah. um, rather than... Lee's very aggressive tactics. Yeah. Um, and they make it seem um, as if Lee could not fail because essentially he had not failed really to that point. Right? No, he was a golden god. And he starts, in, in, the, in the novel, they, they make it seem like Lee starts to believe his own PR more or less, which I don't know, again, if, if that's true. Yeah. Um, but there's one, I'm on page 255, so it's towards the end, and this is where clearly uh, Longstreet is 
realizing what Lee wants to do on the third day and and just the sheer folly of it. Um, and he had a conversation with another person, and then he says, um, Longstreet felt the warmth of unexpected gratitude. Uh, he swung the black horse uh, towards Lee's headquarters on the road to Cashtown. Time now to talk. Good long talk. Watch the anger. Careful. But it is true. The men shied from blaming Lee. The old man is becoming untouchable. Um, now more than anything, he needs the truth. Yeah. But, well, it's not his fault, the old man. And so he sort of has these staccato thoughts. And, and just as he's thinking, like, how am I going to tell Lee that he's wrong when no one can believe that he's um, capable of making an error or mistake? Right. And that builds up um, to the point, yeah, where at the end, Longstreet is right at the expense of maybe the Civil War, right? The, yeah, I mean, is... Th th this is the turning point. This and then simultaneously across the country... Ulysses S. Grant wins at Vicksburg. And those two battles, literally ending the exact same day, I mean, the Confederacy probably could never have won the war in, in that they like overtook the United States, but this is that's the point where the war is only going to go downhill from them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, it's made very clear that it's incredibly symp sympathetic to Longstreet, but he's having this conversation with Lee, um, and he's arguing against the frontal assault. They are well entrenched, and they mean to fight they, meaning the um, Union troops. Yeah. They have good artillery and plenty of it. Any attack uphill will be over open ground. General, this is a bad position. Have you ever seen a worse position? So, I mean, that's sort of mutinous, I guess, for, for Longstreet to say that to Lee. But, I mean, Lee listens to him. He, he values his opinion. Um, and, and so what did, and that's always the question with historical fiction Yeah. and, and having just taught um, the things they carried for the evening class and that always walks the fine line. You want to know what's true to O'Brien's experience yeah. versus what he's making up to get the reader to feel that. And, and since you name dropped it, you know, stay tuned. That will be an episode yes. later this season. Yeah, that'll be uh, a good one. But yeah, so I guess my character is, question is, I mean, I think you've done a good job of characterizing Lee, and I've tried to do Lee, too. Like, how do you think this feels? Like, the other thing we haven't mentioned is he's sick, he's weak. We don't know why uh, this is, again, historical. Uh, in the 60s, 70s, there started to be this theory that he had a minor heart attack. Right. And it's never really called out here, but the old general seems extra frail, extra weak. Uh, his mind is not clear. Um and again, this, there's always theories floating around because a minor heart attack doesn't have a lot of symptoms other than weakness. Yeah. Um, but it's almost sympathetic. It's almost like, well, there's an excuse here. I'm not completely insulting Lee. Maybe there was something wrong with him. He wasn't on his A-game, yeah. Right. And, and again, medical history, it's, it's my bread and butter here. But it's, it's really funny to see them like, don't worry, it's not his fault. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um... But yeah, I, I think Lee, of course, is very interesting here because, I mean, God help us, he, he really is. He's, he's on our mountain in Stone Mountain, oh, Georgia. Geez, yeah. He never even came to Georgia. Um, but, you know, the devil did. Yeah. Uh, according to song. <laughs> legend and song. And the laser show. And the laser show, right. Um, yeah, so the, there's that, that tension between the two all along. And then again, I think there's a lot of shade thrown at Stewart for not, not being around um, that, uh, Jeb Stewart, right. You don't get historically cause he's another one of those, um, godlike people, um, on stone mountain also. Yep. Um, or is he on stone mountain? No, no, but it's there's a Leo. statue of him in the park. Okay. Uh, on the, on the mountain itself. It's I'm confusing him with Stonewall. Jackson. Yes. It's yeah. Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee and, and Jeff, Jeff Davis. Davis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Georgia. Which, I mean, let's just talk about how baffling it is. The vice president of the Confederacy was from Georgia, and he's not on the wall. Right? Like, you'd at least put him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about Stone Mountain another day off mic. Um, yeah, so the other layer about teaching this is, I guess, like, given our um, long overdue um, attention to these other voices... Um, this is all white men, and it's a white man writing about white men. Mm -hmm. I mean, should that... I mean, you can talk about it and talk about historiography and put it in context, but would that... Should that affect anyone's choice to teach this? I will say... I speak as a white man talking to a white man. 
What? Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I will say it's also made more complicated because there aren't a lot of black people who fight at Gettysburg. Um, obviously, by the end of the Civil War, there's a large contingent of African Americans who fight at, uh, or for the Union, and a very, very, very small handful that end up fighting in the Confederacy. Um, but, uh, I think it's Faulkner. Faulkner writes, it, there's a section, Intruder in the Dark, is that right? Do you know that? I don't know uh, that write, Writes uh, the, from the perspective of a black soldier at Gettysburg, it's a, whatever. Um, so there aren't even that many African Americans actually at the battle, even on the Union side. But since we don't even get the Union perspective, really, uh, we would never even talk about them. So yeah, it's one of those incredibly important American moments that has no discussion of African Americans whatsoever. Well, there is that one uh, freed slave or runaway right. slave that appears in the middle, and this is from this is in a Chamberlain chapter. So Chamberlain Joshua Chamberlain, the um, leader of the Twentieth Maine, right? And they're not they're like, what do we do with this guy who runs? And they he's obviously. Um, new to the country because he speaks in a sort of pidgin English and he, he can't even say thank you. So he is a runaway, but new in this. And so they're, they're sort of, they have this conversation in the unit, like, well, what do we do with him? And here we are fighting for freedom and individual rights, but we can't really do anything to help this guy. We got to get ready for our battle. And it's a sort of weird chunk in the middle of the book. Um, right. About a war that's about slavery and there's really no, mention of slavery other than a couple times well and then that's also kind of the lost cause butting up against it because you would never mention such things right i will i mean i guess that's the last main character we really haven't talked about much and that's chamberlain joshua chamberlain he is a, a college professor at Baldwin college he is um well i mean this is this is the triad right we have the old ways that have worked you know almost napoleonic era fighting with uh, robert e lee we have someone developing into the new Total War style, uh, which will be, um, well, George Meade, uh, the actual general in charge of the troops at for the Union side, um, and uh, James Longstreet. Uh, also, I guess you could put Grant and Sherman in that boat. And then we have Chamberlain, who they describe as kind of like an egghead, right? He, he, is, he reads everything he can on military strategy, but until the Civil War, he was just a college professor. And they illustrate him in this book as very academically minded, as very professorial. Um, you know, but he is empathetic to his men. Like, he's not above them. He's not an ivy tower guy. He's just ivory tower guy. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting character. Yet who blossoms under pressure, so to speak. Like, you would expect an egghead academic to fold in the, you know, the brutality or the fog of war but he his skill set just thrives and he ends up saving day two on little round top and he's also the only one as you said who's not a general so in some ways he's the most identifiable the, like he's not he's not someone you would carve on a mountain right uh he's just he's a colonel you know which is someone who with you know graduate degrees you just kind of you could earn your way up pretty quickly to uh and then he kind of saves the day he um, also, I mean, this happens to Longstreet, too, as Longstreet waffles between, well, how do I deal with Lee and how do I fight this battle that I don't believe in but still follow orders? Right. Chamberlain waffles, too, like in his moments of indecision, like what am I doing? Who am I fighting for with the section with the freed slave? Right. Um, or the runaway slave? And then just the moment of two, in the moment of battle, like here they're charging again, we're about to run out, and you get that internal conflict with him. Well, and with his brother Tom, who's one of his aides de camp, right? Uh, and he, he has to decide whether or not to like, leave his brother to the side or put him into a battle which literally could be harm's way in his death. Because like, if there is a battle that illustrates total war and the ultimate destruction, it is Gettysburg. And by day, the end of day one, everyone seems to realize it in the story except for Robert E. Lee. Uh, which is such an interesting detrimental turn to the to the to the storytelling. Um, and again, it's so funny to talk about this, and you put it in my head. It's Ken Burns, just because all three of these men are one of the narrators, you know. And I just hear the Ashoka farewell playing in the back of right. my head now, and right. slow panning into his face. <laughs> and I watched some of the Ken Burns, and there's some, and and then, you know, to prepare for this, and I watched some. Um, 
a battlefield reenactment of Gettysburg uh, with you know historians, and then I watched the scenes from Gettysburg itself, and I watched the Civil War uh, from Ken Burns, and so all my sources are jumbled. But there's one point where right before Pickett's charge, there's an old Shelby Foot tells this in the Ken Burns. He said, "There's an old hair. The hair runs out." Um, and charges just like running away from the noise and one of the confederates said if I were an old hare I'd run too <laughs> and so it's, it's literally word for word in the story and Shelby Foote says that it's as well in Ken Burns so um, there's that's a primary source somewhere I guess somebody put that story down um, because it appears in both works which I thought was interesting um, yeah so I, I don't is is the novel ultimately well we were talking about Chamberlain so how much I mean so Chamberlain and Longstreet come off good in the novel overall right and historically I mean where is that true I will say historically Longstreet has the furthest to go Um, Longstreet really should have been the hero of, of the entire confederacy but he's not uh, so for those of you out there in TV land who want to, like, he's your subject for a biography, like a good one. Um, and like you said, his journals are available, but Longstreet is someone who's being rediscovered now. So h- historically, I probably know the least about him, though I will say, yeah, I mean, th- th- this is what I get from him, right? Like, um, I-, I read an ebook, so I don't have the page number, but in chapter three, there's this great quote from Robert E. Lee, um which is right the first day of the battle. Because the first day of the battle, it seems like the Confederates are winning. Right. I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be. In fact, they kind of think it's going to be a small battle because the, the first couple pages are discussing troop movements. Because like you said, Jeb Stewart's not there. So Lee has no cavalry. He has no observers or scouts then. And so he's just in the town. And Meade has a few men on top of the hill. But that's kind of it. Right. And so he goes, tell General Yule the federal troops are retreating in confusion. It is only necessary to push those people to get possession of the heights of... Of course, I do not know his situation, and I do not want him to engage a superior force, but I do want him to take the hill if he thinks it's practicable. Right? That's that's Lee in this book. He's very soft, very sweet-spoken, but this is not that battle. Right? And at this point, he is the biggest hero to the Confederates. Uh, Jeff Davis has essentially put him in charge of the whole military. And he's like, you know, if it's if it's possible, could you please? And you're just like, okay, Grandpa, we gotta <laughs> you gotta react. It's funny because later on, there's a scene where they're sort of re- realizing that they had a real chance on day two. If um, was it Yule? Um, yeah, Yule. If, if Yule had taken the hill and pushed a little harder, they the Confederates several times had an opportunity to win this and lock this up, and for whatever reason, they did not. Well, in Longstreet, the entire book, like, how many times does he say we should not be attacking, we should right. be flanking? Let's go south, let's go, you know, um, to the right, to the right. And that's that's why, just reading it, even at the most cursory level, I don't understand why you blame Longstreet for anything. He was trying so hard. Right, there's a point where, and I highlighted it, um, it was around the point where I read before, but it's like the worst possible decision you can make. Even someone who's not you know, militarily minded, you don't charge uphill over a mile of open field right. um, on the third day um, when your enemy has been reinforcing. So I'm just wondering what the strategy was. Is it just we've been flanking so long they won't expect us to go up the middle? Um, and the, the same thing happened here at Kennesaw Mountain here in Georgia, right? I mean, they've been flanking, flanking, flanking. Um, and then finally Sherman just charges up the middle, up the mountain, and and um, it doesn't go well. And so I wonder, just as far as military strategy, it'd be interesting to talk, like, do they read this in the War College? Do they read this at West Point um, as a leadership book? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's so interesting. I would interesting. think so. I mean, and this also shows the Confederate mentality. of. I think I think the, the quote was, and they use it a lot in the Ken Burns special, it's like one... Confederate for every five Union soldiers, and they even they, they mention it in the book. And Lee's like, you know, those boys actually can fight, or or whatever, um, you know. And we get these scenes like uh, Chamberlain remembers being at Fredericksburg and how brutal it was. And so it's almost as Lee is so distant he can't relate to those troops anymore. Because you're right, it's the well, I'll send wave after wave up the hill, and eventually they'll get tired of shooting us to death, right? Like, it, there's, there's no logic to yeah. the situation. No, none at all. 
Um, and that's what's so hard to imagine, just the spectacle of that, all those men marching to their death. Um, well, and again, something I tell the students when I taught, and you heard me say it, but when we get to World War One, which is, you know, 35 years or 40, 50 years after this, uh, you have people in the trenches like uh, Black Jack Pershing reading the diaries of these men because they saw it firsthand. And what do you have with the French and the Germans? Well, they're charging over these trench walls, getting torn apart. And in the Battle of the Trenches of August of 1915, you have almost a million dead. Right. Like, this is not how war can be fought anymore. Uh, and it's very clear, right? We've come a long way since Bunker Hill. <laughs> like, and yet, we haven't learned a damn thing at yeah, this point. Yeah, right. And that, yeah, then maybe that's that's the whole point. We can learn and be a little better. No. And then and it, this relates to, I think we talked about this before, when at the end of a podcast, we always ask what we're reading. But I read that environmental history of, of the Civil War. Yeah. Which was good. And there, But this book... Killer Angels is largely, it's sort of at a mile high level as far as strategy goes, you know, like sort of talking strategy. But having read that and really never thought about just the logistics of like the, I think it's the 15th Alabama historically had marched like 28 miles that day and they were low on water. And of course they're going to get tired after charging up Little Round Top four times. Yeah, um, and, totally. And the, I mean, not to be too crude about it but just the diarrhea that all these men had at the same time too and so they're dehydrated it's a hot day um it, it's a very sort of general level book obviously not not the foot soldiers point of view so that would be an interesting tell or another another point of view to put in this chapter sure or this book in, in some way as a chapter um we don't get the foot soldiers point of view right 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 and what it would like what it would smell like with all the horses and all the dead bodies and um it's more theoretical in that way. And that's no diss against the book at all. No. Because it still feels you're there in a way. It's just a different different way of being there, I guess. And you eventually, and I'd say this to academics and criticism, you have to pick the story you're going to tell. And you right, can't, can't tell all. every book, right? right. Um, and if you want that ground level, read the Stephen Crane book. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, 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 that's the difference, really. Yeah, that's an every man soldier versus uh, these leaders and their choices. That's right. And their repercussions of it. Yeah, so um, do you have any other quotes you want to pull out? Because at this point we've introduced our characters and, <laughs> spoiler alert, the Confederates <laughs> lose right. Gettysburg, so uh, we don't have to talk about the whole battle, right? Well, here's a quote that relates to the idea of slavery. This comes from later in the book, again, right before Pickett's charge, and they're just sort of thinking about what are we fighting for as, as they're facing death, and, and a lot of them know that they won't make it out. Longstreet is having a conversation with um, Lowe Armstead, and um, they're talking about... Um, and an another interesting thing is, and this is historically accurate, there's some observers there. There's an observer, Fremantle, from um, England, who's just um, sort of sympathetic to the Confederate cause. And he eventually writes a book, right? And like the real... Person wrote a book? Yes, he did. Did you ever read that? Do you know anything about it? I just know that he predicted the Confederates would win, and it came out like three months before they, they, lost. they conceded. No, I, I've read chunks of it, but okay. I have not read the whole thing. I have read Josh Chamberlain's diaries. Though. Oh, wow. Those are great, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that goes back to another thing when I was asking about Longstreet. That's, I read somewhere in, in, in prepping for this um, that the reason that Longstreet and uh, Chamberlain come off well is that they live longest, so they were, you know, they're continued to write and sort of retell their story in different ways. Sure. And so. Well, and he, he's on the right. I mean, and again, like the right or wrong side of history is hard to say, but like Josh Chamberlain has that, like in that that weird chapter that's added. It almost feels like an editor's note, like you've got to address African Americans because it feels so slammed in. But doesn't he threaten to kill a Southern professor? Right. Like. Yes, he does. Yeah, he gets in a fight. Yeah. Because they're talking about slavery, right? Because I had the quote, um, I was really thinking of killing him and wiping him off the, the earth. And the, it was then I realized for the first time that if it was necessary to kill them, I, then I would kill them. And something at the same time said, you cannot be utterly right. Like, that, that is a man, again, it's the Huck Finn moment where, you know, well, then I'm going to hell. Like, there's, there's something in the humanity here where he's threatening to kill another professor who's convinced that African Americans are human. Right. Um, 
So we have humanity for one person in the book. Um, meanwhile, you know, at this point, Longstreet is hitting his head against a wall trying. Because this is, I think, comes out day two when the battle's really turning for the worse. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so that idea of what if, what if you're wrong? Is this worth dying for? What am I, if I'm on the wrong side? But, but you, to your point, the right side of history is maybe why they come off looking good at the end. Uh, but this is from 271, related to slavery again. Um, and this is Armistead saying, we put it to him. So they're, they're talking to the Englishmen about why you're fighting the war and, and why the English are reluctant to support the Southern cause. Uh, Armistead said, we put it to him. How come the Limeys didn't come help us in their own interest and all? Hell, perfectly obvious they ought to help. You know what he said? He said the problem was slavery. Now, what do you think of that? Longstreet shook his head. That was another thing he did not think about. Armistead said disgustedly, they think we're fighting to keep the slaves. He says that's the most of what Europe thinks the war is all about. Now, what are we supposed to do about that? Longstreet said nothing. The war was about slavery. All right. That was not what Longstreet fought. That was not why Longstreet fought, but that was what the war was about. And there was no point in talking about it. Never had been. So that's an interesting thing to put in the mind of Longstreet. And I wonder if he ever said that in his journals or at some point. Well, like I said, he eventually does join the Republican Party. Yeah. So like in, in, in the 1870s, like that's what they're writing on. Like we're the ones who freed the slaves, the party of Lincoln and so on and so forth. So, so it totally fits in, um, you know, and he's accused of, you know, all sorts of horrible things like being a, you know, an African-American lover and stuff like that. And yada, yada. So, yeah, th th that is something put on him, which is one of the reasons why. He looks so bad after the war to the Confederates. Yeah. Um, and people even try to resuscitate Lee in the same way, but it doesn't work when he owns as many slaves as he, he did. And you know, Yeah, it comes yeah. from his uh, wife's side of the family. Right. Um, yeah, so that's in interesting that that's inserted there. And even if he was thinking it at the time, um, he actually never he doesn't say it out loud at the time, which you'd think would be believable. Well, and I mean... To also set up the distinction here, like Lee is far from the battle in some ways, right? And it's not until the battle is truly lost that he interacts with any of these men, even his own officers. Um, on the other hand, we have Longstreet, who's closer to the battle and sees the destruction and knows what's going on. And then we have Chamberlain, who actually fixes bayonets and charges with the men, right? Like, it's a great line. Uh, uh, Chamberlain raised his saber, let loose a shout that was the greatest shout he could make, boiling up the yell from his chest. Fix bayonets, charge! Fix bayonets, charge! He leaped down from the boulder, still screaming, his voice beginning to give, and all around him his men were roaring animal screams. Like, that, that's the hero you want to follow, right? The one we know the least about in some ways uh, is the one who actually enters the fray. Great. Yeah, that's true, and I never thought of it, but the, yeah, the, the novel is told in three levels that way. So Chamberlain who is on the ground, but in a, in a commanding point of view. Longstreet is in the middle, so to speak, and then Lee, who is above. So there's three different layers to the, to the storytelling in that way. So that's, that's a clever structure as a novelist to, to get those points of view. In. Oh, let's see, other passages? I mean, so let, let's get where we're headed, Nick. Would you teach this in a history class, even though it's a fictional book? Would you assign this? And having never read it before, never encountered it in your history, and you, your PhD is on the Civil War, so this is in your subject area. I like this book. I, I can totally see assigning it. Like, and, you know, again, one one day you and I will sit down and analyze every literary genre and figure it out, but there is something very American about the war narrative. Uh, you know, be, I've always thought it would be a fun class to teach, and just like the novel and or war and literature. Well, and and this book does a good job of trying to gray it a little bit. Now, I, I don't think it's all a gray area kind of murky book. There's clearly heroes and clearly villains, so they find heroes on both sides, right? Like, you know, the Jeb Stewart stuff in particular is a very interesting way to set the table where you have Jeb Stewart, who's supposed to be their eyes and their ears, and he's missing, and so all the other officers are grousing about, you know, court-martialing him, and only kindly old Robert E. Lee wants to keep him around, when in fact, he did cost them the battle. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, and so, because of that, I think there's incredible utility in this book, because uh, it shows the flaws of great figures, which is always important. It's almost interesting. Um, I don't know, though. Like, it's... It's, 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 it's very specific. Like, in a case where you 
like we did it, uh, and you did it before, but they can choose to do it. I think this is an excellent way to get around it. Um, but I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, again, I've never taught it. Like you go through and you know do close readings of it, or, or taught it that way. It's always been an optional book or sure. an, on summer reading, and it seems to work that way. Because, again, kids that are drawn to Civil War, drawn to history, uh, like it. It's very accessible in that way. Um, yeah, I think it, in the right class, or if it were a class on you know, war and literature, I think you'd have to teach it, certainly if you're focusing on American, yeah. um, American wars or American war literature. Yeah. Unfortunately, our, our class is chronological, but like, it would be interesting to talk about like, those different aspects, right? Because reading something like this and then comparing it to like catch 22 or uh you know even slaughterhouse five which isn't about the war but it's a man suffering from ptsd yeah it's interesting it's fascinating um you know and those books probably actually publication dates are pretty close together um so i i mean i i don't know i like we alluded to that ken burns documentary even this the, the almost entire episode on gettysburg does such a good job of summarizing. I can say I don't recommend the movie Gettysburg. All right, we could talk about that if you want. <laughs> it's just, it's, it is. The, I mean, they almost make an effort to remove all of the neutrality and make it a very pro-Southern movie, <laughs> yeah, which, which is, is bizarre. It, yeah. And then just I have to comment this, the beards in that film <laughs> are so bad. It's so, so bad. It's laughable. Like Longstreet, oh, it's, who thought that was okay for a major motion picture? That's one I've seen all the way through once. It's too long. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I show film clips and, and frames of it when I teach well, they it. They filmed it on Gettysburg, didn't they not? They did. Yeah, they so you get did. the spectacle of how long the you know, the uh, Rebel line was stretched over a couple miles. So just the sheer size of that field is... And the overwhelming nature of those charges. Like you said, it's, it's a mild jog up a hill with a gun, right? Like it's awful. Yeah. Um, and this is coming from someone, of course, who was an extra in a Civil War movie. <laughs> yes, I once was a scabby in Andersonville. That's right. Look for me in the riot scene. Yeah. See if you can spot him. Yes, exactly. That's, that's right. Um, but I think this book would be good for what we just, I mean, coming off of um, our creative research project. So we had the students do academic research, but then present it in a creative way. So right. some did podcasts, some did you know animation drawings or whatever. So this would be an interesting way to deconstruct, like, look, let's read the novel and then go and find the sources and how kind of um, figure out what he used and what he made up or what he shifted and, and combined. So that would be a fascinating assignment. I don't know if a 10th graders could handle it, but um, no, maybe. Like, I, mean, I mean, if you had like a, a version of our class at the senior level especially, and then we taught them like a battle or had them research a battle and then had them read this to see like, okay, now can you create a fiction out of blank? Right. You know, right. out of Vicksburg, out of the, the, the siege of Atlanta, right? Like that would be interesting because he does an incredible, this is a incredibly engaging book. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think if you're a fan of the civil war, you, you've already read this. Uh, and if you haven't, I'm shocked because it, it is, it is good. Yeah, related to that, it'd be interesting. I'm sh it might exist. I'm sure it exists. We sh I should probably Google it to find out. But is there an edition that has a bibliography, like with all of his sources? Because that would that'd be really fascinating to, to see or to read Longstreet's journals or... An annotated copy. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, it's funny you say that because, like, even Shelby Foote's The History of the Civil War in, like, nine volumes or whatever, three volumes, uh, there aren't a lot of footnotes because that wasn't the style at the time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'd be interested to see what he, how he put it together. Um, so, Mike, what you reading? Um, I've been reading a lot lately. Um, what did I just finish? I finished a I finished The Side of Paradise. Excellent. Uh, which was good. Um, that came recommended from a, a Maris parent, and uh, I'd never read that before. And sure. Blew me away in its own unique way. And then I read a Camino book um, uh, called The Blast. I'm getting the name wrong. Uh, a Furnace Full of God. Um, and it's about it's by a woman named Rebecca Scott, who is a journalist, and her husband's a journalist, and they sort of chuck life in America and and move to Spain and you know become deeply embedded in the Camino life there. So it's just her personal story. So great. Part of my heart is still in Spain because I walked the Camino in 2019. So well, that's, and that's fun for me. I burned through that book. 
and a late afternoon snack and a glass of wine and a nap sounds perfect during finals week. Yes, exactly. How about you? What are you reading? Um, So I'm going to make a plug for actually a middle grades graphic novel um, called Ghosts. Um, Oh, yeah. You're talking about that. uh, It's by Raina uh, Telgemeier. I apologize. I probably got that name wrong. But uh, it's about a girl and her younger sister. The sister has cystic fibrosis. And they move to, you know, Southern California in the mountains so they or near the mountains so they can get a little bit of a cool, fresh air to help the daughter with her lung condition. It gets really swallowed up in the Day of the Dead. Really good, very sweet. You know, it's a graphic novel, maybe 250 pages, but I just sat down and read the whole thing, and then it's great. Um, what's the style? Well, I mean, graphic novels, because they're graphic, what's the style of the art? Um, if you looked at it, it looks almost to the style of animated afternoon show for kids on Nickelodeon. Hmm. You know, very like very human characters, very cartoony. Uh, if you've read the book Bone, it's similar to okay. that. Um, but the, you know, they interact with the spiritual world, but from the point of view of children, right? So it's very cute, very emotional story. I liked it. Um, but because, you know, this is academic literature, we're talking to high schoolers, um, I will plug a historical piece of historical fiction. Uh, I recently read um, Willa Cather's Death Comes from the Ar- for the Archbishop, mm-hmm. which is told about a young priest who's appointed to the bishopric um, uh, in Mexico, uh, slash kind of southeastern United States, uh, set in the late 19th century. Uh, really excellent. She has very kind of tight prose, um, almost Hemingway, very short sentences. But again, it's a fictionalized account of a real person in this world where, you know, you know, he's trying to hybridize Catholicism and native religions and it's 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 excellent. Truly excellent. Yeah, I've not I've not read that before. I've heard good things and I know it was um widely reviewed and loved in her time. Well and it's it's a hole in my reading list. It's 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 incredible. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamy is the guy. So okay. anyway, uh, so, you know, we got to sound smart today. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, thanks, guys, for listening. Please rate and review us wherever you get us. Share us because people hear about us because other people tell them. And I've literally told everyone I know. So, so hopefully I. you know other people. We're out of people, yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, so thanks, guys. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks. That was fun. Required Reading is a product of Do Letter Podcasting and produced at Marist School. All opinions contained therein are a product of the hosts and Do Letter Podcasting and not of Marist School. The theme song is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod. Find all of his music at incomtech.com used under the Creative 4 Commons license. The host is Nick Hoffman and it is produced by Nick Hoffman. The co-host is Mike Burns. Thanks.